Amen. So good to be here this morning. I am back among the living. This uh, past week, I was uh, I was reeling from uh, jet lag, and then I took the death blow of the flu. And um, I'm just so glad to see faces. My wife kept me quarantined in the bedroom so severely I forgot what people look like. And y'all look beautiful. She did kindly slide food underneath the door so I could keep fed, and I'm, I've done okay with that. But uh, it's so good to be here. And, um, I, of course, I would be preaching on a miraculous healing because that's what I was praying for. And I received it, and so I'm glad to be here this morning. Uh, to speak on that. But today we are going to continue our series on the reason for the church. And as we're moving forward in 2020, I want us to get a real clear picture, a clear understanding of what the church is supposed to be about. Now I'm speaking about uh, the church as a whole, like what the movement that we call the church in the world today, what it's supposed to be. But as part of that, I want to uh, dial us in on where I believe God is specifically leading us as a local church. And I think this is vitally important uh, for us as a congregation. And I think that a very insightful uh, way to do this is to use the backdrop of the early church in order to understand and apply this. That's why we're in the book of Acts as we go through this study. This past week, we looked at how after Jesus ascended into heaven, then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus' early followers the, uh, uh, there in the upper room, and the church was born. Now, once the church was born, it was not the apostles' plan uh, to turn away from those who, was re- who had rejected Jesus, uh, to, um, uh, to, to leave those people out who had mocked the Lord or had rejected the teaching of the disciples. Rather, what they wanted to do was to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those who shouted crucify him to the Lord as he was under arrest and as he was put on trial. So they went to places where they could find those kinds of people. The people who had initially rejected Jesus. And one of the key places they went was to the temple. The apostles and the early church would visit the temple regularly. They would proclaim Jesus to those who had rejected him and his ministry. And what we see is that the early church was a church that lived on mission. So we're going to be in Acts 3 this morning. And the the first 10 verses is where um, we're going to spend our time as we consider this message called Miracle at the Gate. Now look with me at Acts 3.1, and um, this is one of the first recorded episodes of the early church. So you have to remember, we're at the very beginning of what we know of as the church today. So Acts 3 verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Now, Peter and John were two of Jesus' closest disciples. We remember them as two members of Jesus' inner circle. They had been following Jesus since the days he called to them by the Sea of Galilee. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So they followed him all the way, right? And they participated in his ministry. And um, they experienced some real uh, special things that only the inner circle experienced. They were there when Jesus was transfigured. Uh, They were there, um, they were also given specific assignments. Whenever Jesus was ready for that last supper, he designated Peter and John to be the two that would go and prepare 
the Passover meal in the upper room. And so now they have become, after Jesus' absence, they have become two of the key figures of the church, very highly respected, key leaders in the congregation. You might say the two chief leaders of the church. As you're going to see from the passage today, Peter is the primary actor in this miraculous event. John almost comes across like a bystander. Just somebody who's there seeing the miraculous uh, uh, activity that John, I mean, that Peter uh, completes in the life of this man. Also, just one witnessing to Peter's incredible sermon. But I think it's important for us to notice that the two of them went out together. When Jesus first sent out his apostles and the disciples, he sent them out in pairs, two by two. Nobody went by themselves, he sent them out to minister in pairs. And so nobody was a loner. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes 4.9, where it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Well, I think that's an important um, aspect or especially important uh, principle for the church. I believe we are much more effective when we work together than when we try to work alone. That's why we place people into groups in the church. So Luke, who's the author of Acts, tells us that these two apostles, Peter and John, are headed to the temple. Now the home base for the early church after Jesus' departure had become this upper room that was located in what we now know as Mount Zion, just kind of south of the old city of Jerusalem. So presumably from there, the upper room where they would gather together, Peter and John head off to the temple, which is ultimately for them a place of witness. Uh, Because when we hear temple, we think of worship, right? Well, Jesus had become the ultimate sacrifice. So there was no need for the apostles to gather for worship at the temple and participate in the sacrificial acts that were taking place there. Instead, they were to go there to interact with people who would be likely converts to the gospel. Now, the New American Standard Bible that I'm reading from this morning Uh, It takes a literal translation here, and it says, at the ninth hour. Well, what we understand that to be today is at 3 p.m. So at 3 p.m. is the time that they're headed towards the temple. And Luke tells us this is one of the hours of prayer. So there were three significant days during, uh, three significant times during the day whenever the people would gather for prayer at the temple uh, complex. In fact, it would also be at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., this would also be more than likely a time of sacrifice in the temple. So the people are parading towards the temple grounds. It's not just Peter and John. This is like Sunday morning headed to worship, so they just kind of join the caravan of folks that are headed to the temple for this standard time of prayer among the people. Verse 2 says, And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. So Peter, John, all these other faithful folks would make their way towards the temple. At the same time, there's this nameless figure who's being carried by family members, perhaps close friends. He had been lame from birth. And so here some sort of congenital defect that he had experienced meant that he had never walked, he could never stand. And so his friends carry him to a gate of the temple. It's called a gate called Beautiful. Now that's a vague description. 
It's so vague we really can't say with certainty exactly which gate he was being placed at. Now I think that there's probably one very likely gate that this would mean uh, where he was uh, placed to beg. Um, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus tells us that there were ten gates to the temple sanctuary. Nine of the gates were overlaid with silver and gold, but the tenth gate was Corinthian bronze. And it was very precious, a very heavy door. It would shimmer in the light, and it was the most valuable of the doors. In fact, it was so large that uh, Josephus says it took 20 men to close the doors in the evening. It's identified in other places as the Nicanor Gate. So this gate was set apart. So it's very likely this might have been the gate where this man who's born lame is placed. And this gate, we believe, would have been at the temple sanctuary right out in front. So there was the temple, the whole temple structure, and this large courtyard that we know as the Court of the Gentiles. And then there would be the temple structure, and right in front, the first gates would be the Nicanor Gate that you would walk through, and then you would be in the outer court, the court of women of the temple. So very likely, this is where he's placed. And he's given a job. Now the scripture says he would beg alms from those entering the temple. As a handicapped adult, he likely didn't have a job, but his specialty was being a professional beggar. Because that's about all he could do, is just hope somebody would look on him with some sort of pity and give him some spare change. Now there were three pillars in the Jewish faith. Torah, worship, and showing kindness. So almsgiving was the way that the Jewish adherent could show kindness, and live up to his faith. Almsgiving was seen as a major expression of one's devotion to God. So it makes sense that this man was placed right outside the gate of the temple because that way people would come in with the right attitude, they'd pass by, they'd be in the right frame of mind, and hopefully be more generous than maybe they would be at other times. Verse 3 through 6 says, When he saw Peter and John, this is the beggar, About to go into the temple, he began asking them to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. So, A beggar, a man born lame. He sees Peter and John, and he begins to repeat a phrase he's probably said over and over and over again. Alms, alms for the poor. Can you spare a penny? And he's begging for this money. Something about Peter and John made him start speaking up to them. Now think about this. Peter and John had just completed an incredible day of revival. Remember, Peter preaches... And thousands upon thousands are added to the church. What an incredible event. I'm sure they're still talking about this. Still just, you know, sitting in the glow of it. And on this day, Jesus places in front of them one lost sheep. The Lord places one lost sheep so that they might not miss him. Now, we can be distracted by the many And never notice the few. But the Lord places this one lost sheep in front of them. Peter and John see the man. Now let's be honest for a moment. I'm not condoning 
uh, or offering instruction here. I just want to offer or suggest an observation to you. Most of the time when you're out and about and you're walking down a street and you see somebody up ahead that you think might stop you and ask for something or offer you something and you don't want to engage with them for whatever reason. So it's probably some bad reasons, but it may be some good reasons. You don't want to interact with them. What do you do? You avoid eye contact, right? So if I don't look at them, then hopefully they won't talk to me. They'll talk to the next person. That's kind of the way that things go. When we were in Israel just uh, 10, 15 days ago, um, our guide, one day when we were getting out of the bus and we were going to encounter all these salesmen trying to, you know, give us uh, or sell us uh, uh, scarves and hats and shirts and all those things, he said, now when you get off, they're great salesmen. If you don't want to buy, just don't say anything. He said, because I've known plenty of people who said, I don't want anything, that end up buying a dozen things because as soon as you talk, they're going to win you over, right? So you just remain quiet. Well, I think the principle is still the same here. Avoid eye contact and you don't have to give. Well, Peter and John were communicating something very specific because they fix their gaze on this beggar. They don't look away. Then they get his attention, which is probably darting back and forth between people that might give because he's only got a limited amount of time to get their attention. And they say to him, look at us. Well, this guy had one specific request. Alms, alms for the poor. So when he hears that, they think, he probably thinks they're about to give me something. Charitable giving. That's what he's looking for. <clears throat> then Peter makes this powerful statement, almost poetic thing. He says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Now I want you to stop here for a second. Obviously, Peter and John are walking in the Spirit at this point. And they are motivated to act according to God's will in their life. So if they are compelled to give, it's because they believe that God is the one compelling them to do so. But they don't have gold or silver to offer. Now listen to me. God doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. But he always compels us to give from what he's already given to us. So perhaps there are times you're compelled to give, but you think, you know, I don't have what they're asking for. Or I don't know how I can meet this need. But what do you have that you can give? You have your prayers to offer, which we act like doesn't amount to very much, but it does. You, have, you can offer encouragement. You can offer hospitality, a room, a place to sit, time for peace, a meal, whatever it might be. You may not be able to meet all of their need, but you can do something. So if compelled to give, then God only requires that we give from what he's already given to us. So Peter and John say, we don't have gold. But what we're about to see is that there's something much more precious than silver and gold. In fact, this man had need of something much more serious than financial support. What we know is that spiritual poverty is much worse than economic poverty. So Peter and John could solve the problem this man had from something they already have. So not only that, by the power of Jesus, they could restore this man's body. So Peter says, in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Nazarene walk. Now, there was a time when Peter thought a lot about himself, and he felt like everybody should have their attention on him. But Jesus had really gotten a hold of his life. And he realizes his only source of strength, his only position for ministry, 
is the name of Jesus. So he claims healing in the name of Jesus, which is to say, by the power of Jesus or by the authority of Jesus, he commands the man to walk. Well, Peter commands this man born lame to walk. And you, you have to think, that must have been a stunning request. I have to imagine that people froze to be like, what? What is he saying to this guy? So what happens, verse 7 and 8. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Peter commands the man to walk. The literal translation is, be walking, is what he says to him. It must have sucked the oxygen from the area. Everybody turns their attention to see what in the world's going to happen. The scripture says he takes this lame beggar by the hand and pulls him up to his feet. Now, don't miss this. The power to heal was Jesus's. But the hand to lift up was Peter's. The power was Jesus's. The hand was Peter's. Isn't that how it should be with the church today? The power is Jesus's, but the hand is the church's. You know, we get that reversed very easily, and we start to think that we're the ones that, you know, it's by our ability to organize or by our ability to plan or to execute some event or some program or activity that we have the power. But the power is not, in, is not the church. <clears throat> Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is the power source. But we get to be the hand that lift people up. In fact, we are the hand reaching out. We are the feet stepping up. That's what the church is called to do. So power in the name of Jesus is unleashed. Peter extends his hand. The scripture says the man's feet and ankles are strengthened. Instantly the man born lame is upright. And for the first time in his life, this man takes a step. He is walking. Now I would imagine that he probably attempted this many times, don't you think? You know, if I just try hard enough. That I can stand up on my own. Or maybe some people gave him certain things to take that might make him better. Or to do certain tasks so that you might be better. But here in this moment, I can only imagine what it would have been like for him. He began to walk. I think people would immediately start to dart from watching this guy towards Peter. Like, who is this guy and how is he able to do this? But the power behind the miracle is not Peter, is it? Just a few verses later, Peter is preaching to all these witnesses who are going, you know, mouth agape, thinking, what has happened? And he, you know, sets them all straight in his message. In fact, we've not read anything about this beggar's faith. All we know about about is his need. But what about his faith? What is he placing his faith in? Verse 16 says, and on the basis of faith in his name, this is Peter speaking, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him the perfect health and the presence of you all. So the power was in the name of Jesus, but the healing came on the basis of the man's faith in the name of Jesus. Now, we don't know what experience this man had with Jesus. We do know that he begged a lot at this temple gate. So perhaps he was there at that temple gate when Jesus walked by. He could have shouted out for him, Son of David, Son of David. 
He could have asked for healing. He could have asked for help. I don't know what his experience was. It's total speculation. But somewhere along the way, maybe he heard about who Jesus was. And he started to think, could it be true? Could it be true? And now all of a sudden, he places faith in this man, Jesus, and he's walking. Up until this point, this man only sat outside the gate to the sanctuary of the temple. He had a certain sort of defect where he was not allowed in the temple. Unwelcome. A reject. You know, just desperate for acts of kindness. So what does one who is suddenly able to walk after maybe 40 years of life, what does he do? Luke gives us a great description. He says, he entered the temple with them. So formally rejected, now he's able to walk. So he's made whole. He walks in. And it says he was walking and leaping and praising God. Not a great description. I bet the joy of this man was palpable. He was leaping. Now the word choice leaping, I think for sure has to be there so that it might connect our minds with the prophet Isaiah who prophesied in chapter 35 verse 6, then the lame will leap like a deer. And so the prophecy's coming true. He's leaping. Jesus has set him free. He's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. The guy's joy cannot be contained. Now, we just had a great time of worship. And sometimes when we sing these worship songs, we just do it, you know, from memory or maybe by habit. Or sometimes we think, I like this tune or I really like these words. But then occasionally there's a song that really rings true with your heart. And you say, that's true for me. This means more, and the tears well up because it means the most to you. Well, this guy's singing a song. He's praising God from a massive overflow of joy. He's been healed. He's been set free, completely changed. This guy has praises that are heartfelt. Verses 9 and 10 says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the gate beautiful of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Everybody saw what was happening. They're rubbing their eyes. They're pinching themselves because they knew who he was. How was this guy able to do this? And all of a sudden, they're filled with wonder and amazement. They had rejected the Lord. They had rejected the disciples. But now they're filled with amazement as they see the power of God on display. Now, you can read through chapter 3 later to catch Peter's message to all of these people because the miracle opened the door for the gospel. And so he began to preach. He took advantage of it. Peter never, very rarely, didn't take opportunity to speak up. He's called the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. So if he had an opportunity to speak, he's going to speak. And so he starts preaching, and then he offers good news to all of them. Verse 19 says... He's speaking to them, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So he's saying to them, your sins can be wiped away. Sure, this guy's walking, but you can experience forgiveness. It's not through the animal sacrifices taking place here today. It's not through the adherence of the Torah. It's not through discipline and worship. It's not by showing kindness. It's by turning to Jesus. Now that's not just a good word for the guys that were there when Peter and John were speaking. That's a good word for us today. Have you believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? If not, that invitation is extended to you today. Repent. Turn from your own way. Turn towards Jesus' way. 
Place your hope and your trust in him. Be forgiven. Be reconciled to God today. That's what Peter's saying, and I think the message is true for you now. If you're longing to experience what he describes here as refreshment from God's presence, that comes the relationship with Jesus. So turn to Jesus today. Well, in Acts 3, as Peter and John are on their way to the temple, a man who was born lame is miraculously healed by faith in the powerful name of Jesus. And what really stands out to me today, and what I want to drive home to us here at the end of this message, is this didn't take place as the church was gathered together in worship. This moment, this memorable experience, didn't occur as Peter was up preaching before believers. This life-altering moment for this man was not something that occurred during the regular gathering of the body of believers. Instead, Peter and John found their greatest opportunity for ministry outside the walls of their regular gathering place. So let me apply this to you. As a member of God's household at First Baptist Church of Columbia, you are called to live on mission recognizing that most of your greatest opportunities for ministry are outside the walls of this church. Most of your greatest opportunities for ministry are outside the walls of this building. Now, one of our strategies as a church is to attract people who are not in a relationship with God to our property for our events in order to introduce them to Jesus. Some of you are here today or visiting And we're so glad that you're here. Some of you are coming as seekers. You don't know what you think about Jesus, but you thought, I'll sit here and see if, you know, I might learn something. Well, we welcome you. We're so glad you've come. We know that this is part of what a church is supposed to be about. Not only that, we host events for people in the community that might connect them with our church, that might help them to get get to know who the church is and what our message is. In fact, we believe the beggar in Acts 3 is there in the court of the Gentiles. This was the designated area of the temple where non-Jews could come and worship God. And since the days of David, God said that his house was to be known as a house of prayer for all the nations. So that means there has always been place for the seeker among God's people. Because of that, we must strive to be excellent in our programs and activities as a church. Not only that, we make sure that our uh, facilities are useful for attracting and reaching folks in our community who are far from God. That's one of the reasons we have to always stay on top of upgrading our facilities as a church. This past November, we pledged towards a campaign called With Faith. It was to be an 18-month, $1.5 million campaign above the, the tithe in order to address three key purposes. Number one, attain key financial flexibility for the church down the road by paying down our debt. The second thing is to accelerate our missions experience by coming up with strategic things that we were going to give to with regards to missions. And then the third was to address some key facility upgrades. These facility needs are remodeling our children's center and also addressing the first floor of the Family Life Center. These are important things we need to do. In the Family Life Center, on the first floor, we need to move our desk entrance down there for security reasons to the first floor. In addition, we think that with a growing community downtown, one of the best ways that our church can bridge the gap with the people who live around us is by really um, uh, 
placing effort towards our fitness activities in the Family Life Center. So we want to add the walls, do the things we need to do there so that we can be more effective in ministry. Second thing is in the Children's Center. With all the young families that are coming with children, we want to make sure we put our best foot forward down there. So we've got to address what's happening in the entry area so we can deal with security needs, but also make our facility match with what our ministry needs are today. So it's so important that we have this capital campaign so that we can see these things happen. And if you're a member of this church, we encourage you to pledge and give towards the With Faith campaign. It's amazing what God does when people come together. But let me get back to the main point here. Attractional ministry is not enough to fulfill what God has called us to as a church. We are by nature a people with a mission. And that mission is not simply about gathering the saints together. It is about scattering and carrying the message with us, the message of Jesus. We cannot depend on the attractional nature of the church to make the difference in our community. We can't just plan events and hope people will come. We are to be missional. That means we have to see that our greatest ministry opportunities very often lie outside the walls of this building. We come to the church for corporate worship. We come to be challenged and encouraged by the word. We come to minister and care for one another as members of God's family. But we walk out this building on mission to bring the light of Jesus into a watching world. We gather together for the sake of those outside these doors. We are a church that's missional by nature, and I feel compelled as pastor to tip the scales in the direction of missional ministry. I want to prioritize discipling of saints here so that we can go out and be effective for God's kingdom. The problem is we're tempted to think that only some are called to do that. Well, there are some professionals that are called to live on mission. There are some missionaries that we commission to go and do these things. But that's that's not the plan of the church. At First Baptist Church, we believe that everyone is called to live on mission. That's not a commission reserved for just a few folks the ultra-trained, the specially called out. Every member of the body of Christ is commissioned to go, therefore, into all the nations and make disciples. So what does that mean? It means what happens on Sunday is just as important as what happens between Sundays. You are going to experience encouragement from me to be here at church. But what I believe we need to do is help one another to walk in the Spirit, to live on mission, between Sundays. So we're working on a strategy of how we can equip and encourage you to do that as members of First Baptist Church. But I want you to listen to me as I conclude here. The church was not established and then given a mission. Jesus established his mission and then he gave the mission a church so that it might be fulfilled. As members of First Baptist Church, let's commit ourselves to walking in the Spirit during the week recognizing our greatest opportunities for ministry are very likely going to be outside the walls of this building. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the power that's in the name of Jesus, the power that's there to heal, the power that's there to restore, the power that's there to forgive, the power that's there to give us the hope of eternal life. Father, I pray for each person here that we would be open to you, Holy Spirit, as you speak to our hearts, God, may you have your way with us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
<clears throat> we come to a time of invitation. For some of you, that invitation is to join the church, to follow in believers' baptism. Perhaps it's to respond to the gospel, to say, I want to say yes to Jesus. If God's speaking to your heart today, would you respond? I'm going to invite you to stand. Our choir is going to sing. I'll be waiting down front. If you have a decision to make, you respond. take but a second here just uh, so glad that you're here uh, we do have our first family lunch right after this in uh, Ellis Hall they, I'm sure they've got tickets there available although I know a lot of already reserved space but uh, that's lunch for you if you want to uh, purchase a ticket and join us for lunch our college students we do have free lunch and Bible study for you of course over in the 1420 